Welcome to the Sharkpreneur Podcast with Kevin Harrington and Seth Green. Kevin Harrington is the inventor of the infomercial, one of the original sharks from the hit TV show Shark Tank, and has generated over $5 billion in TV and digital direct response sales. Seth Green is the world's first trusted authority on cutting edge direct response marketing, a best-selling author, and the only three-time Marketer of the Year nominee. On the podcast, Kevin and Seth interview sharkpreneurs who share straight talk on what it takes to explode your business. Why do so many businesses struggle while others seem to explode overnight? Do you wish you had the secret to this type of exponential growth? Now, I've scaled more than 20 businesses to over $100 million, and it's not just luck. In my new book with Mark Tim, Mentor to Millions, you'll learn the repeatable framework I use in all my business ventures for massive success. Order at KevinMentor.com and get over $1,000 in bonuses. Head to KevinMentor.com. Welcome to the podcast. This is your host, Seth Green. Today, I have a good fortune to be joined by Art Bell. Art, thanks so much for joining us. Seth, thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Let's go back in time a little bit. How'd you get started? How did I get started? <laughs> well, I was born at an early age, as Groucho Marx said. Um, I, uh, you know, I got into the entertainment business kind of circuitously. I uh, loved comedy as a kid. When I was eight years old, I started watching the Ed Sullivan Show every week, looking for those great comics who were on, including, you know, Alan King and, and Richard Pryor. I saw his first performance on the Ed Sullivan Show. Blown away. Loved comedy. And then when all the records came out, you know, Robert Klein and uh, George Carlin and Bill Cosby, forgive me for mentioning him, but, you know, they were the guys. And I did everything I could to emulate their voices and try and be funny like them. I thought being funny was a very important thing. So in high school, you know, did an underground newspaper, satire in college, did some performance, sketch performance, but ultimately ended up taking a job in Washington, D.C. as an economist. Little bit that, different career path. That was, yeah, well, you know why? Because everyone kept telling me, mostly my parents, that you cannot make a living in the entertainment business. For them, it was just like impossible. Either you were a doctor, or a lawyer, or an accountant, or you starved to death. And, uh, you know, that kind of stuck with me, I guess, on some level. <laughs> so I took a job as an economist and I loved it. I was an economist in, in, uh, in Washington, D.C. for three years. I was very smart then. It's been downhill since then. But I was working with very smart people and solving very hairy problems for the government. But at the end of three years, I said, you know what, maybe I should try and get into the entertainment business. So I went back to business school, which <laughs> I wish somebody had told me business school is not the straightest path to the, uh, to the enter entertainment in industry. But, you know, my background was finance and economics, and I figured maybe I could, I could get in that way. So I did. But along the way, I did something in, in business school called the Wharton Follies where I got to write the entire show. It was a comedy, musical comedy, satirical review. And it reminded me how much I love comedy. And I thought, well, maybe I do have some kind of ability in this area. Got my first job in CBS, uh, CBS television stations. It was like working at the post office. There were 15 layers of, of management. And I remember going in one day saying, you know something? I, I worked 10 hours a week on this financial report. I asked if anybody read it. Everybody said no. And my boss's boss said, well, that's how we do it here. And so go back and do the report. And I thought, you know what? This is not going to ultimately be the place for me. 
Luckily, a friend of mine had gone to work at HBO. Now, HBO in the mid 80s was like Netflix. It was like the coolest place to work in television, you know, because they were really innovating. They were doing uncut movies, uncut uh, comedy acts. Robin Williams, you could see him uncut and uncensored on television for the first time. Um, so I thought, okay, well, this is at least closer to the product, smaller company. I was hired by HBO to do subscriber forecasting. And <laughs> the reason my friend called me is he said, you know, they, they need somebody to do like modeling and forecasting. And you're the only guy in the whole entertainment business I know who can do that. So I went, got the job, spent a couple of years doing that. Very interesting. I figured I'd do a really good job and then maybe I'd get noticed around the company a little bit. And that's, that's what happened. I ended up in new business development, working on, they only had one product in new business development. It was a new television channel called Festival for people who didn't take HBO because they didn't like the sex violence and bad language on HBO. I remember my first day I walked into my boss's office and I said, you know, how is this going to work? Entertainment with no sex violence or bad language. Right? You're kind of eliminating a lot of it. <laughs> I said, that's why people like to watch television. And she said, shh. And of course it failed miserably. But along the way, I got to go around the country as part of my job as a financial and marketing analyst, talking to people how, about how they used television and what they liked and what they watched. And every once in a while, I'd say, hey, you know, what, what would you guys think of an all comedy network? And everybody said, well, that sounds like a good idea. I like comedy, you know. So I kind of tucked that in my back pocket. When Festival, when that television channel went down, I had nothing to do. In those days at HBO, they didn't fire you. They just said, hey, you know, sit tight. We'll find something to do for you. But I was antsy and I figured I better look for another job. So I started putting my resume together and I figured I'd write up my idea for an all comedy channel, which I've been thinking about since business school, you know? I mean, there was an all music channel, all sports channel, all news channel. Why not an all comedy channel? It deserved one, right? So I wrote up my idea for the comedy channel. Uh, channel and I was going to staple it to my resume, send it to all the big, you know, Viacom and, and Paramount and all those guys, see if anybody bit. Before I did that, again, my boss's boss walked in and said, what are you doing? You don't have a job. What could you possibly be working on? So I showed him and he said, you know, this is something that the chairman of HBO should see. The chairman of HBO was Michael Fuchs. He had just been named the most powerful man in Hollywood. So let me just set this up for you. If I got in the elevator with Michael Fuchs by accident, I'd break into a cold sweat. He was about, you know, nine layers above me. Very powerful, very uh, important guy. And I said, sure. And he said, okay, let's go. And I said, right now? He said, yeah, right now. I had no presentation. I had no idea what I was going to say, what the pitch was. But I'd been thinking about a comedy network for a long time and I'd written it up. So I walked in, gave my pitch to Michael who listened amazingly enough. And 15 minutes into it, after asking some questions, he said, you know what, let's try this. Let's try to do a comedy channel. And that's how it got started. That is absolutely incredible. The longer version of that story should probably be in a book somewhere if it isn't already. Let's, uh, let's talk about what you are doing now. Okay. Well, as long as you brought up the longer version of the story should be in a book, the longer story, the version, uh, version of the story is in a book in a memoir I recently wrote called Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. And, <laughs> That's a great title. And it's, um, well, it's a great title. And I, I, I like to think it's a great book because it's a memoir. It's about my experience starting 
the channel with basically no legitimacy in the comedy business. You know, I hadn't worked in the comedy business. I had not worked in programming and was a financial guy, but there I was suddenly working on this all comedy network and being expected to make it successful. And that was, uh, you know, that was a lot for me. I was young. Um, and the book tells the story. It, it, it also tells a story, which I didn't tell. I'll just briefly mention the first time I pitched it at HBO to the head of HBO programming, that was before I got to Michael. She told me it was the worst idea she ever heard because nobody wanted to watch that much comedy and HBO would never do a comedy channel. And, you know, she gave me 10 reasons and sent me packing, but Ultimately, the Comedy Channel did get started at HBO. The reason I named it that, my book, is because I wanted to convey the fact that Comedy Central was not born fully formed, brilliantly successful. It was very difficult to get going. As a matter of fact, my first year, I went to work every day expecting them to shut it down. I mean, that's how bad things were. Critics hated us. Audience was hard. So you've obviously experienced some significant ups and downs along the way. What do you think some of the most powerful lessons you learned were? That's a good question. Well, you know, number one, um, I think it's important to tell everybody, if you are in a company and trying to start a business, talk about your idea to everybody. And not only people in the company, but people outside the company, people in the business, friends of yours, your wife or girlfriend. And the reason I say that is, and, and people always stop me there and say, well, somebody will steal the idea. But you know what? When you're talking about an idea that's going to take millions of dollars to start, it's not that easy to steal. Um, and most people don't think that way. Most people think this way. They think, okay, interesting. Here's why it's not going to work. And so what you get is a lot of feedback about it's too expensive. You'll never get the comedians. You'll never get this done. Nobody in the corporation will listen to you, you know. And then you start thinking about, okay, how am I going to deal with that? So that's a very important thing. Second of all, uh, I think it's really important to have a lot of passion about your idea. People talk about elevator pitches. You know, I always think of elevator pitches as, you know, the background is uh, music and it's a very kind of mellow undertaking. I, that, to me, I think that's just a waste of time because what you should be doing is flapping your arms and jumping up and down on the table saying, you can't not do this because if you don't do this, somebody else is going to do it and then you're really going to be sorry. So, you know, I, I, there are a number of other things. Uh, let me, let me think. Um, give me one second. Um, yes. Prepare to fail you're putting yourself on the line. You're coming up with an idea that the company is relying on. You have to really have a lot of faith in yourself. Now that doesn't have to be full time. And as I point out in my book, there are many times when you go, oh my gosh, this is, this is really not working very well. What am I going to do? And people around you are saying that. So you have to be prepared to fail, but you also have to be prepared to lead. You have to be prepared to say, no, no, that didn't work, so we're going to try this. And every day I would go into work and say, what can I do more of that's working? What can I do less of that's, that's not working? Um, and finally, be willing to compromise on your idea. You know, I, listen, I had a comedy idea for a comedy network. I knew it exactly what it was. It was in my brain. I knew everything about it. But at the end of the day, 
Some of that's not going to happen. It had to be done differently. People say, well, I don't like that part of the idea. You have to be willing to compromise. Remember, you're trying to get this thing up and running. You're not trying to get your particular vision, you know, come hell or high water up and running. You want to see it work. And especially with something that's a long-term project or a product that's going to live for forever, you hope, you can make changes. You can adjust. And that's, that's what I learned. Those are amazing lessons. How did you go from Comedy Central to president of Court TV? <laughs> well, I left Comedy Central because I was fired after eight years of making it successful, which, you know, I, I got to say, Seth, that was a very disappointing moment for me um, because I thought, what do you have to do in this business to keep a job? How about you start a channel that becomes a huge success and makes millions of dollars for people. Now, that doesn't do it. Um, they brought in new management and the new management, because I was working for a president, they fired the president. Next president came in and he brought all his people in and fired everybody else. I was very upset about that. I did talk to some people after I left and I did end up talking to someone who was a, the head of a record company. And he said, you know, Art, if you don't get fired once in a while, it probably means you're not taking a stand or doing something wow, interesting. That's good advice. And that, it was, it really, it was the first thing that made me feel better. You know, lots of people say, oh, it was ridiculous. They shouldn't have fired you. How can they do that? What are they thinking? That doesn't help. But when he said that, I thought, that's right. I did take a stand. I did really put myself on the line. And I knew people who I still do, who were working in the entertainment business at roughly the same job for 25 years. That wasn't my vision for my career. Anyway, I uh, ended up consulting for a couple of years to a lot of different channels around uh, in New York, um, including A&E and uh, Children's Television Workshop that was doing Sesame Street. And I, I, got, uh, I got a really good view of the television business. Um, and... At that point, I felt more like a senior executive. So when I got, I got a couple of job offers, I took the one that had the worst, worst the, the biggest possibility of failure, and that was Core TV. And the reason it had the biggest possibility of failure is because it was doing terribly. It was not very well distributed. The OJ trial had come and gone. They had no audience. They had absolutely no revenue because advertisers were staying away from that. Ick, we don't want that stuff. And the uh, people who owned the channel were about to close it down, but they said, let's give it one more chance. So they hired a guy named Henry Schleif to be chairman of the, of the channel. And he called me in. He didn't know me, but he had heard about me. So he called me in and he said, okay, you, I am going to hire you and you're going to make this channel successful and I'm going to do everything else. And that's pretty much how it worked. I was president. I was responsible for putting in a new a new strategy. We changed um, prime time, which had been just reruns of court courtroom coverage and not getting any audience or revenue, changed that to a criminal justice uh, programming block where we did forensic files. We did psychic detectives. We did all kinds of shows that ultimately made their way in some fictional form. These were, these were documentaries essentially, but a lot of these were emulated by the networks. Um, uh, almost immediately afterwards. It became very successful as a channel. We went from 25 million 
subscribers when I got there to 85 million when it was bought by Turner eight years later. And we were one of the top 10, 15 channels uh, in the ratings every week. So that was the story. How did I go from it? Well, let me just tell you this. When I walked into Court TV, which was essentially a news organization at that time, and into the newsroom, as a guy who had just spent his career in comedy, and I was facing a lot of guys who had worked for the New York Times and Time Magazine and were died in the world journalists, ready to do anything, crawl over glass to get the story. I did not get a real welcome reception. <laughs> and I had to really prove that I was on their side and that I wanted to take, take what they did was so well and make that part of the channel. And it took me a little while, but that's what I did. Now, along the way, I got to learn about what television journalism was all about. And, you know, again, it's all, the best part of it all is, is that you learn so much and you experience so much and you meet so many interesting people. Part of my, I think part of the, the reason I could go from comedy to court is because I am easily fascinated by things in business and I got fascinated. You were very fascinated with commercializing 3D television. <laughs> you, you, you wrote that it was one of your favorite but least successful projects. Um, talk a little bit about how do you think like the current trend of Oculus and augmented reality has a chance at bringing that back to a potential for profitability? Oh, all of these things are going to be profitable. 3D television is, is, has a great future in medical applications where surgeons have to see things in 3D so they don't chop you up the wrong way. I mean, all of these things have applications. The difficulty is, and the, the, the problem is, when you try and apply these things to uh, entertainment, you, you're faced with the same problem every time, which is entertainment is about stories and characters, essentially. And all of the bells and whistles, for example, color, which was added to movies in the, what, around the time The Wizard of Oz was made in the 30s. Um, yeah, that enhanced the viewing process, but just think if The Wizard of Oz had been all in black and white, it still would have been a great movie. It, yes, it was enhanced. And the same thing with 3D movies. Let me tell you, three di directors of movies and television flocked to 3D. They loved it. Why? Because it was another storytelling device. But at the end of the day, it was one of hundreds of storytelling devices that go into making these things successful. And at the end of the day, it wasn't the most important. And I'll tell you the big problem. People did not like to wear glasses to watch 3D. And there's almost no way to do it where you don't have to wear glasses. We did find a way, but it's mostly applicable to advertising outdoor because you have to be like 30 feet away to get the 3D effect. So billboard advertising will probably get to, get to 3D. Television, it's just right now it's too hard. It's just too hard. You have advised so many amazing people and organizations over the years. What's the best advice you've ever been given? Well, I think I, <laughs> I think the best, I, the, the best advice I've come across is that it's hard to start businesses inside of organizations. I've been told that several times at several businesses, including the business that I, you know, that I was working on 3D business inside a giant television organization. Big organizations or successful organizations are not really um, constructed to start new businesses. They, they worry about failing. They worry about competing with themselves. They worry about, it's easier to say no, for one thing, when somebody comes up with a new idea. 
And that is so much in conflict with what the trend is now that I'm seeing, which is people want, corporations want their people to think more entrepreneurially. If you have an idea, we want to hear it. That's what they say. But, you know, it's the guys at the top who are in the position to say that'll never work. And that's where, you know, that's where the, the conflict comes in. Your passion is obvious. What do you like best about what you're doing now? Well, what I'm doing now is writing uh, and, uh, and talking about my book, actually. Um, I find that talking to students of business and film and television about my experience uh, is, is really satisfying for me because I don't think there's a whole lot of information out there, a whole lot of books out there that show people what it's really like in the television business. People who read my book say, oh my gosh, I didn't know so many people got fired all the time. Yes, in the television business, you're only as good as your last hit, essentially. And people got fired all the time. Um, that story does not get told often. So students are on the edge of their seat when I talk to them. I enjoy talking to people about the subject we just talked about, which is how to start businesses inside new businesses, because it's not obvious. And finally, I just started writing a few years ago, and I found... Not that I hadn't written anything in the past, but I found that I love writing. I love the process of uh, telling stories on paper and I am writing fiction now. I know that's a little bit of a departure for memoir. I started with memoir and I love writing memoir, but fiction, you know, and that's, a, that's a wide open field, man. Talk about a blank sheet of paper, you know, it's all up to you. All right. Well, incredible story. Great book. Fascinating interview. This has been Seth Green with Art Bell. Art, for our folks watching and listening who want to learn more about what you're doing and get a copy of the book, where is the best place for them to go? Well, they can get a copy of my book uh, in uh, at Amazon.com. Look up Constant Comedy by Art Bell. They can go to my website, ArtBellWriter.com, where they can learn how to buy the book and also read some other stuff that I've written, some fun stuff. Um, and the book is available in, in bookstores. All right. Well, then this has been Seth Green with Art Bell. Art, thanks again for joining us. Thank you, Seth. Thanks, everybody, for watching or listening. We'll talk to you or see you next time. Do you need money to fund your idea, product, or service? Are you ready to take your business to the next level but need capital to get it done? Kevin Harrington has heard more than 50,000 pitches and knows how to help you make the perfect pitch to get the funding for your entrepreneurial dream. He's distilled the process down in his perfect pitch cheat sheet, and it's yours for free. Just text PITCH to him right now at 727-888-2100. Text PITCH to 727-888-2100 right now and claim your free perfect pitch cheat sheet. Text PITCH to 727-888-2100 to start funding your dream today. This show has been produced by Market Domination, LLC. To discover how you can have your own show completely done for you and turn it into a real published book and become the authority in your marketplace, go to www.marketdominationllc.com slash podcast offer. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs> <laughs>